Welcome to Retro Fanfic Retrospective, the podcast where we dredge up old fanfiction and expose it to the cold, harsh light of 2019. My name is Amato, and with me are... Tori Dog. And Dom Squirrel? What are we doing? <laughs> are we different familiars here? Yeah. If I was a familiar, I would be the dog. I think that's very clear. Uh, is Dog the last name of Snuff? No, it's just Snuff. Snuff Dog. But Snuff is a dog. Yes. Therefore, okay. Snuff Dog would be an appropriate moniker. As a Just like Sonic Hedgehog. And, exactly. And Jack Human. <laughs> that, that's human. how I view the world. I don't know about you all. Uh, yes. Uh, if I was to be a familiar animal, I, I don't know. I think if I was to be a familiar animal, I'd be the supportive roommate. <laughs> supportive distant roommate. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, you're doing a great job. Uh, opening and or closing the gates. Keep it up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, by the way, that stuff in the fridge, is that for everybody? or No. Okay. Because <laughs> I had a, a severed hand in there that you hit, took the other day, so I was just wondering whether we're doing a, a, everything. Uh, no, it's fine. <laughs> that's not supportive but distant. That's passive-aggressive. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's the best as you get. Mm. Channel that <laughs> passive aggression into you with a larger goal. No, it's fine. It's fine. Don't worry about it. <laughs> that reminds me of my favorite, uh, second favorite Jewish joke, mm-hmm. which is how many Jewish grandmothers does it take to screw in a light bulb? Um, the answer is none. Don't worry about it. I'm fine. I'll just sit in the dark. <laughs> Don't worry about it. It's fine. That's a good one. Uh, I'm not sure if I'm allowed to laugh at that. <laughs> I'm Jewish, so yes, you are. <laughs> I don't, I don't know if that's how it works. I'm pretty sure it is. All right. Well, I'll, I'll take your word for it. Speaking as a Jew, which makes me a just, you know, expert and um, total authority on what is appropriate and what is not. Yeah. <laughs> well, my Jewish friend said it was okay. So. Exactly. Right. Yeah. I'm going to use that from now on. Was that extra character points or character creation? <laughs> <laughs> I assume. I mean, I've got so many advantages just leaking out of me. I must have gotten them from somewhere. I feel like I min max into something that doesn't matter anymore. I was patched out of the game. <laughs> Don't explain a lot. <laughs> right? Uh, that's okay. Because you've, you've dual classed second edition style into video and not video, audio editing. <laughs> <laughs> Allowing us to put this high quality podcast before the masses. Sure. In which we talk about things that everyone will agree is fan fiction and that nobody will shout at me about it not being fan fiction. So what's the fan fiction we're reading this week, Amato? Uh, to lead into that, let me ask you, what month is it? September. Uh, September? I-, I think that's not correct. I don't think that's a month. It's a very friend-filled October? Uh, I was going to say, yeah. Does this evening seem to be a quality of friendliness or perhaps being lacking for company? I mean, I've, I've, I've been alone, but I don't feel lonesome, so, you know. Well, it doesn't matter if you feel lonesome. Oh, okay. Then. Does the night feel lonesome? It has it No, I'm sorry. Does, does the quality. month feel lonesome, I should say? <laughs> oh, correct, That is what yes. the adjective is being applied to. I mean, uh, hmm. so I, far, this October, I mean, September, is <laughs> about distinctly lonesome, yes. And so far, this intro is going perfectly. <laughs> yeah. Swimmingly. Yes, we are reading A Night in the Friendly September. I mean, <laughs> A Night in the Lonesome October, which is a novel, 1993, by Roger Zelazny, 
author of a bunch of stuff I haven't read, and also Lord of Light and the Amber Books. And this. Yeah. Does does that wrap it up? Does that sum it up for you two also? All roads lead to a lonesome October? Honestly, that, that does sum it up pretty well for me. Like, the Amber Books were where I started, and this story, and a couple other short stories in the old, uh, like, sci-fi collection books. You know what I'm talking about? I can't remember what those were called. Asimov Science Fiction Monthly? Yeah, that's those are the ones. Those, and then there was another one that was, like, called Science Fiction and Fantasy. Oh, yeah, yeah. I feel like my sister subscribed to both of those at some point, and so I would pick them up and look at them sometimes. I was in Chicago, like, uh, in June, and I... They had those, the sci-fi and fantasy ones and the Asimov science fiction review ones, and they were, like, three books for $10, so I bought a ton of them. And I, I specifically also picked all the ones that had Asimov's writing in them and all the ones that had Zelazny's writing in them. Mm-hmm. So I read a lot of short stories from those, especially recently. To be honest, I keep on forgetting Amber is a thing. Really? <laughs> Every so often I just have to be reminded. It's like, oh, yeah, 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 that whole series, yes. That whole series of ten books. No, <laughs> that, that series of five volume. books, and then he wrote some other books, but who cares? Well, they're, they're I all, have strong opinions have, about the Amber series. That's fair. thing is, is every, I didn't read them until my 20s, which is bizarre because I read a ton of like fantasy books when I was really young, but I didn't read them until my 20s. But both copies I read uh, that, I, that I own are all ten books in one volume. Yeah, I have a copy like that, too. Yeah. The covers have all fallen off because that is too big a book for one <laughs> yes. volume. I'm just going to put that out there. Agreed. Maybe they should have only put five in it and mm-hmm. burned the rest or something. I don't know. <laughs> I'm just spitballing here. <laughs> just random opinions. Just take them or leave them. I, I get where you're coming from. But, you know, I, I had to walk the path all those times. Walk the pattern. Pattern. Yeah. Yes, thank you. <laughs> I just walk the cracks in between the pattern in this fractured, imperfect reflection of a world that we live in. Mm-hmm. <laughs> According to the Amber Diceless role-playing game, what that gets you is shadow walking, except that everything's kind of crappy. <laughs> shadow walking, but worse. Yeah, shadow walking is just that, like you step in mud a lot more, and like birds <laughs> poop on you. and Sometimes you like misstep and twist an ankle. If you stay at a hotel, like the, you just can't get comfortable in the bed. <laughs> and they say it's like continental breakfast, but it's just like some really old stale bagels. Right. You try yeah. to, you know... The scrambled eggs are really watery. Yeah. You try to find a shadow where, like, the scrambled eggs are really good, and the bagels are just that much worse. <laughs> it always happens that way. Uh, anyway, A Night in the Lonesome October. It's a book we've all read by Roger Zelazny, mm-hmm. even before I signed it for this episode. <laughs> but I hadn't read it for a long, long time. It's a book I really liked and actually kind of reread every like three or four years or something and i, I was about due for a reread oh good question how many pages is this do y'all know because because i i mean my main point was is this a book is it a novella length i feel like it is relatively short this it's is, a short novel but i don't think you would call it a novella this is 190 pages i don't know how accurate uh, that okay. is okay I, I guess that's novel length it's also just kind of a, you know, it's a breezy read. That, so it yeah, feels shorter than it is. Yeah. yeah. The first half especially flies by really quickly. Yeah. Yeah. The book flies by, which is why I always thought this was a short story in my recollection <laughs> until I reread it and was like, no, this is way more pages than a short story. Okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, we should probably talk about it as fan fiction. 
we'll we'll go into the story a little bit more later, but it's basically a horror and Victorian literature crossover. It's kind of interesting what Zelazny chooses to pull from when he just kind of had his choice, whatever to do. You've got the Cthulhu mythos underlying things. Right. That does not count for fan fiction for me. Right. And then you've got like Sherlock Holmes. Mm-hmm. And you've got some other Victorian things like Jack the Ripper and mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. someone who's supposed to invoke um, Ra Ra Rasputin, lover of the Russian queen. <laughs> <laughs> Ra Ra Rasputin, lover of the Russian... That's stuck in my head. Yeah, you're welcome. <laughs> Use that in uh, social studies class as a student teacher. Really? Yeah, we were talking about revolutions. That's cute. One of them was the Russian Revolution, and clearly that song t- tells you everything you need to know. That was really popular when I was in college, especially because it was like one of the songs you could dance to on the dance game in Xbox Connect, which they had at the local Froyo shop. Wow. <laughs> nice. I like, stumbled across a random YouTube video of some, like, two people like doing a perfect of that. It was really <laughs> fun to watch. <laughs> anyway, you've got those characters, but then you have... The universal monsters, not even like, you know, Frankenstein from the novel Frankenstein, yeah, but not, Frankenstein from the movie Frankenstein. And not just Dracula, but, you know. Dr- Dracula played by Bela Lugosi, probably. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Yes. And then you've got not just a werewolf, but you've got the character from the movie, the Wolfman. Yes. <laughs> and yes. so I just found it a little bit curious that he drew from like the modern movie incarnations. Well, okay, maybe the Sherlock Holmes is supposed to be kind of like the Basil, what's his name, Sherlock Holmes too. I don't know. Um, the like Deerstalker it, cap. It's quite hard to tell. Yeah, you can't um, really tell. They don't mention specifically any cap. Or... But maybe that's what he had in his head. I don't know. Could be. So it's a mega crossover. I would call it kind of a general horror crossover for the most part. It's a Super Smash Bros. of horror stuff. Right. I, yeah, but it's funny because it's like, it's definitely um, a, a kind of classic horror mystery type stuff. Like, it's very Halloween to me. Like, you've got the Dracula, like the Dracula of Dracula. <laughs> Literally right? the Dracula. Yes. Literally There's Dracula, a Dracula right. Um, of the original Dracula in, in like, you know, all the other references you mentioned, Amato, and with the movie references, but like those kind of cheesy adaptations, mm-hmm. I, I don't know, they, they're classic adaptations, but... Popular uh, culture adaptations. Right, but uh, as we consider horror nowadays, we have like Junji Ito and we have, uh, I mean, we have like a million things. We have slasher movies. We have so many other things. This is kind of very Halloweeny at its core, mm-hmm. and the fact that it's October kind of speaks to this. Like you've got Frankenstein's monster, but in kind of the modern like uh, tropey conceptualization of Frankenstein's monster. So, do you think it would be fair to call this book a novelization of the song "The Monster Mash"? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. That is exactly where I was going. I'm not sure "fair" is the right word, but. <laughs> No, but it's interesting, though, and, and I would love to get more into actually specifically like how Frankenstein's monster is portrayed because it's like exactly as you said, but also has the depth of emotion that Mary Shelley lent to the character. So, Oh, this is undoubtedly a graveyard smash. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, why don't we talk about the actual story then? Um, so the story opens with our viewpoint character for the whole book, whose name is Snuff. Right. Snuff is a dog, or at a least a watchdog. A watchdog. It is now currently a dog. Right. Snuff may not have always been a dog, but at this time seems to identify as a dog, is in the shape of a dog. A watchdog. A watch. Is this important? Yes. I mean, 
My name is Snuff, and I am a watchdog. Okay. That is very important. That is the first, like, not the first line, but in the first part, right? Mm-hmm. I think it's the first The first line. line is, I am a watchdog. My name is Snuff. Thank you. Yes. I live with my master, Jack, outside of London now. Oh, my copy's kind of messed up. Oh, it starts with October 8th. That's why at the very beginning... It starts with October 8th. That's why it seemed a little bit odd there. And then it goes, ah, the the days at the very beginning of the book are pegged to the end of my copy. My extremely legitimate copy of the book that I'm reading here. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. Someone just taped yeah. these pages in the back. <laughs> so the format of the book is you have a prologue and then you have October 1st through 31st as separate chapters. Yes. Uh, so, in fact, the title is kind of very inaccurate. Well, it's several nights. It's like... Every night in the well, Lonesome October. But that's the point, is that every chapter is one night in mm. the Lonesome of October, up until the 31st, when everything kind of hits its climax. That may be the least show. lonesome night. Perhaps. Yeah, uh, it, was, it was very, uh, very... Yeah. Um, social. Very social. That's yeah. the opposite of lonesome, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I had problems even considering the idea. <laughs> okay, so Snuff is a dog, watchdog-like being. And quote, I like being a watchdog better than what I was before he summoned me and gave me this job. And that's the only line in the whole book that talks about Snuff being anything else. Yes. Yeah, and and we have um, a lot of reason to believe in this book that all of... The thing is, there's a lot of animal characters. We have a lot of reason to believe that they are, I don't know, just special for what they are. Especially, you know, because later on we get a squirrel character who is like, I wasn't always like a super hyper aware squirrel. I used used to like. Yeah, that character is an uplifted squirrel, like was yeah. granted sapience or whatever you call mm-hmm. it. The rest of the animal familiars are just assumed to be uh, have been regular animals before all of this. Yeah. So right. speaking of animal familiars, you learn not exactly as an info dump, but kind of in a drip, which is part of what's fun about the early part of the book. They do a good drip, I think. Yeah, it, it's a, it is a good drip. It's not a drip that seems unsatisfying um, or overwhelming. But you basically learn what the situation is, which is that it's a small town in England, and a bunch of people are living in the area. Like, they've moved there over the course of however long. Some of them have been there for a while. It's a slightly rural area outside of London mm-hmm. in 1888 or so. And these various people are participating in what they call the game. The game. The game. And there's players in the game. Yes. And the players in the game are preparing for a ritual that will occur at the end of the month in which two factions will vie to either open the door for the Lovecraftian elder gods to return to Earth or keep that door closed. Close the gate. Close the gate. And that... And there's various kind of rules about... Or, like, you know, metaphysical circumstances wherein, like, well, it's hard to tell who's on what side until at least halfway through. It's not even locked in who's playing the game until, like, a week or so into this month. This is, like, Snuff's project, in a way, and and some of his friends' projects is to, like, figure out who is a player. Mm -hmm. And by that, he's creating a map. And also, who is working for which side, the openers or the closers. And that's the slow trickle, right? Well, there's various things. Yeah. The the interesting thing about this world is that the the magic system in this are all, they describe it as complicated rotas of like weird esoteric things like a, a green cloth ripped from a scared woman at midnight. Right. And so the magic in this world is very purposely vague and esoteric and works in mysterious ways. And so the cool thing about the book is that there's 
it's not just one thing that they're trying to do. There's like five different things simultaneously. Right. So, Tori, you mentioned trying to figure out who's on what side is a thing that they are concerned about. Mm -hmm. Trying to figure out where the ritual is going to take place is a thing they're very concerned about. Where the gate is that they're trying to open or close. And where the gate is. And this is a kind of geometric problem, but you also have to know the residences of all the players in the game, which means you need to know all the players in the game and where they live. And, like, that is more complicated than it sounds. And then you have to do a lot of math. And this whole thing does come across, like, a game game. There's specific rules that everybody follows that... They don't really give a lot of why, but they... They mention that, like, kind of, if you break some of these rules, it tends to not work out well for you. It's that, not that you'll be, like, stopped from doing it. That it's terrible for every everybody involved. Things can go wrong. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, the other projects include, um, once you figure out who's on what side, murder is a, you know, part of this game. After the death of the moon. <laughs> After the death of the moon. According what... to the rules. <laughs> right. And then there's the preparing for the ritual, which is kind of scavenger hunt-like. There's a really funny scene early on where, like, a bunch of the players are in a graveyard, and they're all trying to find things for their own, like, purposes. And so they're like, oh, hey, anybody have, like, the finger bone of a hanged man? And they're like, oh, yeah, I've got one of those. Do you have any, you know, Did intact... You liver of a drunk? Right. <laughs> yeah. It's like, let me see, uh... And they trade stuff back and forth. Right. Yeah. Th that was happening. Right. That's happening at a part in the game where they don't know who's on what side. So everyone's kind of friendly-ish. Yeah. And those those are the human players in the game. But like all right. of the human players have animal companions. And the story is being told mostly from Snuff's perspective. And he because... mostly interacts with the other animal familiars. It's entirely yes. from Snuff's perspective, isn't it? I don't think yes, it changes. Yes, it is. You're correct. Yeah. It's, it's from Snuff's perspective. But we also get some insight into the perspectives of other animal familiars in the game. And it's important we learn early on that for in order for a human to be a player, they have an animal familiar. But all of these are different animals. There's like a needle, the bat, and there's, there's a snake. Uh, there's a snake, yeah. There's uh, a cat. There's a cat. The cat uh, Snuff interacts with a lot. So Snuff's project is kind of to figure out like who the human players are. And he partially bases that on like who has a familiar or where these familiars are coming from. They also mentioned that's of... not a hard and fast rule, too, because there's when there's confusion when uh, one of the characters is a player or not, uh, Larry Talbot, the mm -hmm. wolfman, mm -hmm. um, they wonder, like, well, if he's a player, then where's his companion? He talks a lot with plants. Can a plant be a companion? I, I don't know. It could be. <laughs> is he his own yeah. companion because he's a werewolf? Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Does so, that count? So these are traditions at, which are vaguely understood. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah, and there's a lot of that confusion. So, And Snuff is kind of a fun character in this way because he's always, like, I love that he's always trying to map out where everybody is. And he makes some mistakes in his map, which I think is very interesting. Here's what um, I like about Snuff. Mm -hmm. So his partner is Jack the Ripper, who is some sort of cursed immortal who has, like, a magic knife and, you know, seems to be a fairly chill guy for the most well, part. Well, he's portrayed as a very prim and proper Victorian gentleman in all sense of the word. Right. And uh, and he's a good guy. These two are closers, you know. Right. But what I was going to say is what I like is that he and Jack are really equals in this venture. Because Jack, they never second-guess each other's decisions very much. If anything, Snuff second-guesses Jack's. But Jack just seems to be like, yeah, Snuff, I totally trust you to, like, go out and map the thing. And, yeah, like... They're, they're partners. They're, they're partners. Yeah, they're partners. They, they work yeah. independently from each other. They work together. Jack seems to be working on the scavenger hunt part and, mm -hmm. in some cases, kind of defensive things. And Snuff is the one who's trying to figure out the players and the yeah. geometry. And, like, that's his job. And that's completely his job. And it's not Jack's job. One of the other compa companions are talking to uh, Snuff, marking how they were surprised that Snuff was the calculator of the group. Mm -hmm. <laughs> 
which is unusual. Yeah. yeah. Well, and because we get this from Snuff's perspective, we don't really understand Jack's role particularly well other than to be a closer when the kind of the event happens. Well, he goes Snuff... around and he like he does some things, but Snuff kind of performs a lot of yeah, the calculations that are necessary. I think it's fairly heavily implied that Jack is doing things useful. Yeah, in the same way that Jack's not micromanaging Snuff, it's not Snuff's job to keep track of what Jack is doing. Yeah, yeah that's they, fair. They say that like Snuff um, doesn't know what Jack's doing, but Jack is collecting materials for spells to they describe it as just boosting their chances. Right. Now uh, my question, though, at this point, is like, are we are we supposed to read this as as Jack the Ripper as you would uh, he, definitely like? But how and why? I, because I, of the knife connection. Sure, but because it's Jack, it's Victorian London, it's um, a horror v- v- horror you. horror themed, and it's at the same time as Sherlock Holmes, which is 1888, which was. Actually, a year before the Jack the Ripper killings in London in 1887. Fine, but, um, I mean... No, there's nothing textual saying this guy is a murderer of innocent peoples or anything like that. Yeah, he seems like a nice guy. Jack the Ripper kind of preyed on young women and, you know, one assumes sexually assaulted them before murdering them. Yeah, this is not historical... Fact. Yeah, I don't think we're supposed to take. I don't think we're supposed to take that this guy. character does did those things, but like just that, that's who you're supposed to call to mind. And this that, is what really surprises me because I mean I I never thought of it that way before. I was wondering who Jack was, but like because he seems like you know we don't know that much about him, but he doesn't seem like you know like a rapist and murderer like i mean he, he does i guess he does seem like a murderer because there are some killings that do happen because he does go but, out and murder yeah people. <laughs> but he's not like you know snuff seems like an upright person you know upright dog and to work with him doesn't seem like he's working for someone who's like a, a pretty evil man no we're not so supposed to think that he's surprised. evil yeah it's just a character oh. based off the idea of what if jack the ripper and so what, what if he what what if, what if he was actually a magical cursed magician trying to close a Cthulian gate? <laughs> I see. And, and I know that requires you to divorce <laughs> that, it from everything quite, historical about Jack yeah, the Ripper. that's quite a leap in logic well, from my perspective. I mean, I understand ha- what you're they saying. They also have but... Frankenstein, Frankenstein's monster, Bela Lugosi, Dracula. Well, yeah, but th- those are things that have, you know, context. Here's the thing that, the that I find really weird about this as a fanfic, the one thing, is that there's this whole range of character direct drawingness. Mm-hmm. And so you get the characters where it's like, oh, this guy seems like it's supposed to be vaguely Rasputin inspired or like reminiscent. Or yeah. these two seemed, this vicar, yeah, I guess sure. like a crazy vicar seems like kind a kind of thing that fits in the this sort of story, right? Right. And then you have the characters who are clearly supposed to be specific characters, like the good doctor who is Dr. Frankenstein or mm-hmm. the count who is Dracula. And... That's not weird either. Or, or it's the the great detective who is Sherlock Holmes. Yeah. And those characters are definitely supposed to be these specific characters, right? Yeah, and those are very clear. You know, and that's fine. They kind of play neutral positions, right? But then you have, what's his name? Talbot. Larry Talbot? Larry Talbot, who is just directly named and he's the Wolfman. And I was like, why is this one character given specifically the name? Why is he called out specifically as the character from the movie The Wolfman? But we don't say Sherlock Holmes. Well, <laughs> copyright? I don't know. But no, Sherlock Holmes is like the most classic kind of fanfic you could possibly write. Like, it's a good way point. public domain. 
I do think there was supposed to be some vagueness here. I don't Puzzling think... out some things is supposed to be part of the pleasure or being like, hey, I recognize who that's supposed to be. I don't think there was a point when Sherlock Holmes had introduced themselves directly in the story. No, there isn't. Oh, you know, and that's, that's, a, that's actually how a point. They, Larry Talbot did actually walk up and say, hi, I'm Larry Talbot. So it's just about what Snuff knows. Yeah. That yeah. makes sense to me. That, like, he does not know the name of the good doctor because no one goes and talks to the good doctor except, mm-hmm. you know, his familiar indirectly. And his, there's no reason for, I mean, his familiar, but Bubo the Rat. And Bubo the Rat is not going to be like, his name is this. Yeah, mm-hmm. they have people they know that they are introduced and they have people that they don't know, that they, which they signify with descriptors. Great detective, good doctor. Yeah, uh, but- so, so we get the name of Jill because Jill talks to Jack and yeah. that sort of thing. Okay. Okay, that... That settles it a little bit more in my mind, yes. It just <laughs> well, seemed strange that only one character had, like, the name. The direct name. Oh, well. Well, many of the characters have names, but you're right. Like, Larry Talbot is a very particular name. And I wonder if that was just Zelazny's, like, a little, like, a personal, this is fun for me kind of thing. Well, this like, entire thing was just, clear. was just, this is fun for me. Yeah. 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 I think but, I mentioned you know, last week Putting that, that name in specifically... But it is a really good point, especially with Sherlock Holmes calling him the great detective indicates that he's Sherlock Holmes, right? right? But nobody's going to know who he really is because he's constantly going around in various disguises. So I think that's the really fun part of having him be unnamed. And then the doctor, you know, is mysterious as well. Like all the source materials that make the characters mysterious continue to make them mysterious to snuff. So I think that's a really good point that Don brings up there and it's also they're pretty obvious to the reader too yeah that's also true i guess out of all those characters i would have i mean been least familiar with larry talbot like out of the universal monsters he's not quite frankenstein or dracula and that might have been part of the point too yeah maybe is that that would be you do not immediately recognize so it was easier to use as a (laughs) character name right yeah I, i think there's some element going on here of wanting things to be a little mysterious but not so mysterious that you can't tell who these people are supposed to be. And so that's the setup for the game. And then you have night by night things happening, and there's various plot threads happening. Right. Quite a few plot threads. There's the continuing actions that we talked about that happens throughout the story. Yes. There's the kind of threat of the vicar, who is the most, like, militant, murdery people, apparently, of them. And uh, Snuff finds out later on that he's he has a captive who's playing on sacrificing at the ritual and they kind of decide to try to stop to save the captive and that's sort of a subplot there's the continuing relationship he becomes out of all of the familiars most friendly with this cat Greymalk, who is apparently apparently Greymalkin was the name of the familiar of the cat of one of the witches from Macbeth I guess yes. so <laughs> so I guess that's who this witch is supposed to be maybe yeah or, or the name is a reference for sure but the, I think the witch character is supposed to be generically a witch yeah like, right yeah <clears throat> And it's an interesting progression there, both, and it parallels Snuff and Greymalk and then Jack and Jill also, that they they become kind of friendly with each other. And over the course of the month, it's kind of like, well, you know, we get along well and we feel like we're friends, even though we don't know, you know, what side each other is on. Yeah. On to like, we're getting along well, even though I'm pretty sure we're on opposite sides. (laughs) Into like, we know we're on opposite sides. We are definitely on opposite (laughs) sides, but we're still friends, right? (laughs) <laughs> Which is super cute, too, because it's, like, there are several instances where Greymalk will, like, you know, they'll encounter, like, other dogs or, like, things that are unfriendly to cats. 
cats and mm-hmm. like Snuff will be defensive of Grey Malk or Grey Malk will want to like uh, Bubo the rat will be like, you're hanging out with a cat. I am not going to chill with you. <laughs> and Snuff will be like, nah, nah, she's cool. Right. <laughs> it's well, all like, good. Well, like, Grey Malk will tell Snuff what what other characters came around while, while Snuff was out looking for them, just mm-hmm. sneaking around. Yeah. Make a good team. So there is an interesting relationship between Snuff and Grey Malk that develops, and it's like implied that's paralleled with between the two uh, uh, masters also. Yeah, you don't see two any partners. of them hanging out, but you do understand that they become friendly, and so presumably it's some kind of... There's like one night later on where like all the cards are on the table, everyone knows what's, what, what side everybody is on, but they still, all four get together and go into town on a shopping trip together. Right. It's very yeah. cute. Power of friendship. Right. Part of the cards. <laughs> <laughs> There's also a, I don't know, like a, something that's been consistently going on with Snuff, which is that he is a watchdog. I don't know if you've really addressed what we have his not. role as a watchdog is, because that's been kind of consistent from the beginning, is his job is to keep all the things in their various containers, <laughs> cages, mirrors, there's uh, the thing in the attic. The thing, thing in, in the, the mirror. Attic, the thing in the mirror. The, the thing in the circle. The mirror. Oh, things the in the thing mirror. The thing in the circle. Like a pentagram protective circle. Yes. And the thing in the wardrobe? Yeah, that sounds yes. right. Yeah. Those are all the things in Jack's home. <laughs> Jack and Snuff's home. The Snuff is meant to guard. And every day, the thing in the mirror, I believe? Circle. It's circle. The thing in the circle, yes. <laughs> in the basement. There's things in the circle that slither. And then there's a thing in the... Things in things the mirror. Things in the mirror, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> Backing up. Things in the mirror that slither. These are the terms is, that Snuff thinks yes, about them. Yes. And it's talked about in the book. <laughs> and at one point, the mirror cracks, and there's some anxiousness about that. There's all these things. And I love this part of the story, is we don't get a lot of clarity on this, but the thing in the circle every day will change into a different type of dog, a uh, female dog, wondering if that's Snuff's type. Right. It's like, today they're a collie. I heard you like redheads. Trying to entice you know, like, Snuff to break the circle. Yes. Uh, I'm a chihuahua. Do you like small girls? Like, it's and, all these things. And Snuff says that there's a uh, language barrier. Yeah. <laughs> he always the, has some quippy oh, retort. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> he always has some retort, which is just so funny, and it it's really humanizing to Snuff. Like, it's it pretty, like, you know... And like easily the first half of human heterosexual, but it's also like really funny. (laughs) And like easily the first half of the month of October in the book goes by pretty quickly. All the chapters are pretty short. They usually include a a rundown of Snuff doing a check on each one of these bound creatures. And Tori, you were talking about the part of that that humanizes Snuff. I'd say what I really like about this is the way in which it kind of dogitizes Snuff (laughs) in that like literally what Snuff does is basically go around and bark at these things to intimidate them. Yes. So yes. it's like so it's like there's constantly these evil things that want to get out and he just has to go and like bark angrily at them. <laughs> and I feel like that's how any real watchdog would think the world works. Oh it's like God. by barking at this thing every day, I am protecting this friggin' house. And sometimes it's when Snuff so is bored, sweet. doesn't have anything to do, they just do do around just to keep him in check. Absolutely, I but just, but in Snuff's case, that is literally what he's doing, <laughs> and it actually is like an important job. And I love it. Like it just it makes you like love Snuff's <laughs> character so much. I don't know if this is just me, Not my like no. dog affinity, but it makes Snuff so endearing. Okay, so I'm gonna read a chapter. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> this mm. is October twelfth. Slow day. The thing in the circle tried being a greyhound. I was never attracted to skinny ladies, though. Growled a few times at the thing in the attic. Watched the slitherers. Watched Jack as he 
puttered with his acquisitions. It was still too early for him to actually start using them. Heard from Greymalk later that Nightwing, that Nightwind, the owl familiar, mm-hmm. had se- seized Quicklime, the snake familiar of Rasputin, I think, and borne him far out over the, the Thames and dropped him in. He was washed ashore later. Spent a long time slithering back, not sure what they'd been arguing about. Also learned of several cases of sudden severe anemia among the neighbors. I'm glad the Count doesn't do dogs. Oh, yeah, he never says Dracula. It's, it's no, the Count. it's the Count. But we forgot about that, yeah. too. No, it's yeah, just Larry, Larry Talbot or whatever. Uh, Talbot. Anemia. Yeah. anemia, yeah. I so took Jackie's slippers this evening and laid at his feet before a roaring fire while he smoked his pipe, sipped sherry, and read the newspaper. He read aloud everything involving killings, arsons, mutilations, grave robberies, church desecrations, and unusual thefts. It was. It is very pleasant just being domestic sometimes. And that's the whole chapter. <laughs> that was a really cute part. That yeah. was yeah. <laughs> one of the sweet chapters where like things are just kind of calm with them. And I love that too because Snuff, as a domesticated dog, is just like, I'm a watchdog, but also I hang with my human and it's chill. And that's probably the shortest chapter. They're of very yeah. varying length. Yeah, that's the Jesus wept of this thing. <laughs> <laughs> um, other subplots. Larry Talbot becomes their ally pretty quickly. And <laughs> it's kind of gauche before people f- figure out to talk about your um, affinity during the game. And Larry, Larry Talbot is like, because Larry Talbot is American, of course, mm-hmm. just goes through a bunch of the politeness. He's like, hey, your dog's good at closing things, right? Closing, closing, <laughs> right? <laughs> so we're friends, right? <laughs> closing. <laughs> and so there's a little subplot with him hanging around and like, seeing how he can be useful and trying to, like, there's some anxiousness over whether he'll be able to perfect, you know, herbs that will let him control his transformation on the night of the full moon when the, you know, ritual's happening. And some scenes where um, Werewolf Larry talks with Snuff. That's fine. Yeah. And there's a subplot with Sherlock Holmes poking around trying to figure out things and, you know, Snuff watching Sherlock Holmes and Sherlock Holmes watching everybody else and Sherlock Holmes going around <laughs> in disguise and, like... In a perfect disguise that fools everybody. Well, he's Sherlock except Holmes. Except for Snuff, who just knows that it doesn't smell right. <laughs> yeah. My my favorite thing in this story, by the way, not my favorite thing, a thing I really like about this story is Sherlock Holmes deducing, but, well, piecing together everything that's going on and deducing that Snuff is a perfectly intelligent being that understands yes. everything that he says <laughs> and so going good. and being like, Snuff, I'm going to lay out my cards on the table and talk to you about this. I'm Sherlock Holmes. I have deduced that you are an intelligent being. Well, there's also the wolf part. Well, that's also freaking awesome. And that, was, yeah. that was before that, too. So, well, there's like, many things. The great detective that, try that angle first. Them. That's but, true. Yeah, but I just like any story where Sherlock Holmes is like, yes, this, you know, <laughs> this would not have been my first like. Yeah, well, how, how does he put it? It's like it's uncomfortable to accept all this like supernatural stuff going around, but it's the logical conclusion. You know, it's all Occam's razor. It's yeah, like, yeah. If you well, take away everything impossible. The only thing left, however improbable, must be true. So Right, so that's yes. totally Sherlock Holmes. He's like, yeah, okay, it's like crazy supernatural stuff, and you're an intelligent, magical talking dog. It, now what are we doing from here? Yeah, I know, it's great, because at the, the first time that Snuff kind of sniffs him out, right, is when he is pretending to be, like, uh, the lady neighbor. Uh, Linda, Linda Enderby. And Linda mm-hmm. Enderby, right. And Snuff knows that's a, that's a great detective, but Linda Enderby comes by Jack's place and Snuff's place and is like, oh, let's hang out and have tea or something. I don't remember if she brings cookies, but 
Jack likes her so much. I mean, you know, the great detective in disguise yeah. that stuff refrains from telling no, Jack. Larry. Who, Linda oh. and Larry Talbot form kind of a friendship to talk about plants. That's right. Okay, but what was the thing where, like, Snuff doesn't want to tell Jack? Doesn't want to tell Larry. Larry. Oh, was it Larry? Yeah. It was. Oh, okay. My Cause, bad. Because, like, Larry Unbidden would talk about, oh, yeah, Linda came by. We talked about plants. Mm-hmm. It was super cool. We had so much fun. I see. Yes, of course. <laughs> Snuff was like, right. Yeah. And Snuff, like, he's like, he wants to tell him the truth, but he's like, but they like each other so much. Well, and interesting. Like, can't do it. Yeah, Larry really needs some support right now. Right. Larry was kind of an interesting character. Like, he just seemed very lonely. So that was kind of Snuff's role. I, I thought it was Jack for a second. But no, yeah, that makes total sense that it was Larry because he seems to be very lonely most of the time. Yeah. Well, talking to plants. Maybe yes. that is whom the October is lonesome for. I think it's lonesome for everyone, but yes, maybe especially. <laughs> I don't know. Snuff does not seem lonesome. Snuff is hanging out with people as much as Snuff wants to. Yeah, all the players yeah. hang out with their partners, and even then they hang out with each other pretty often, except for Larry. Larry's the only one that keeps by themselves most of the time. Yes, but the October is lonesome, so that's why they're all trying to keep it company. <laughs> anyway, um, Snuff was very sweet in not wanting to reveal that identity, but eventually it comes to a head. And, yeah, it's great because the great detective is like, Snuff, you can hear me. I know you can. Well, there's Snuff's a, like, I'm not giving anything away. There's and a, he just keeps talking to him. There's a fun part so when uh, well. Holmes is talking to Snuff. And uh, Holmes mentions at one point, uh, many, many of these crimes would be virtually impossible to demonstrate in court, but I have neither a client who requires that I find a way of doing so, nor inclination to pursue such matters for my own amusement. So mm-hmm. there's this very Holmesian thing of, like, I figured this out because I want to figure this out. I technically don't have to solve anything because that's not my job. <laughs> yeah, but he's also yeah. not being selfish. He's kind of like, so I get the big picture here. And the question now is, in what way can I do good? Mm-hmm. And he finds a way to do good. It's very nice, even yes. though he's not a player, even though he's not involved in the whole gate thing directly. Yeah. Now, is there anything else, any other points you want to hit on in the main story? Uh, do you want to talk about the Dreamlands trip? That is one of the few things that I remembered clearly from this book, uh, you know, without having read it for like, I don't know, 15 years, I, a long, long time. Yeah, there's a time when, because of circumstances, uh, Grey Malk is flying Jack, not flying Jack, flying Snuff over the Dreamlands and giving this, um, I don't know, travel... TV show itinerary like overhead <laughs> they, description. They get sucked into the dreamlands and they're like flying through the air and they're trying to orient themselves. And uh, Grey Mulk uses the description to both orient themselves and steer themselves to where they're trying to go. Right. And it's all very Lovecraftian dreamlands bullshit where she's like <laughs> describing like, oh yeah, that city and here's an interesting thing about it. Just like one line. We're never going to go there. It doesn't need to be fleshed out. And here's another place and like a little bit of description. Yeah. And there's Ulthar, which is totally the best place and they have their shit together. <laughs> you know, all the highlights. Is this when they go to visit the great cat? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that, that was kind of a really bizarre part of the story. Well, it is Dreamlands. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, but like you have a good point in that the, the, it's kind of hard to place because of the several descriptions. And then suddenly you're kind of there Grey Malk is talking with this great cat who is kind of like a divine entity who can say all of these various things about 
the future or whatever. The future, whatever. And they get some information, but it's really not a lot. And it's kind of a surprising interlude. But it comes back and becomes relevant to Greymall kind of later during the closing, which I thought was good. Well, it's one of those stories where all the plot threads tie together. Everything's relevant at the end. Yes. Mm -hmm. You know, to one degree or another. Yeah, it's just, this was a very bizarre interlude, but I I did like how it came back around. Because at the very end, we get the event. I think it was nice to, to remind you how Cthulian the events of the story were. Yeah. Right. Even though you're not really seeing that part, it is just totally on a straight out of Lovecraft and contemporaries Cthulhu mythos backdrop. Mm-hmm. Like yeah. that's what's going on metaphysically or whatever you'd call it, cosmologically in the background. I think metaphysical is the word they use hmm. to talk about the magic stuff. Yeah, yeah. Now, I think we're not really going to discuss how the story ends, both because... I feel like we've kind of conveyed the flavor and the general content of the story. Mm-hmm. And maybe not saying the ending will convince people to go read it. Right. Because not... we all really like this book and want more people to read it, I think. Yeah. Yes. We're normally very uh, spoilerific podcast, but we're going to hold back this time. <laughs> right. Yeah, I just don't feel like talking about the ending kind of changes the the feeling that we've conveyed mostly. Yeah. Yeah, the the ending is very good. It is good. <laughs> can I spoil? Good. <laughs> can I spoil the one thing about the ending? Which thing? Sherlock Holmes turns himself into a werewolf, and it's awesome. I think I mentioned it earlier. So. Oh, did you? Yeah, and, and <laughs> I've had the chance to think about that. And the fact that it's his greatest disguise, I I think I agree with what Don was telling me is that. He is, he's yeah he's learned how to turn himself into a werewolf because the reason I like that is Larry Talbot <laughs> as a werewolf has been a lonely character right and the fact that Sherlock Holmes can become a werewolf or he the can... great detective makes his loneliness like kind of realized to like the the that he's no longer lonely in the end through that completion, which and, uh, is really cool. And Sherlock Holmes perfected the recipe to make sure that you stay cognizant as wolf, wolf form so they can both just wolf out all the time. Yeah. And have fun. And that just sounds spectacular to me. And I think Sherlock Holmes plus werewolf powers equals a story I want to read more. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Well, that's the other best thing about Sherlock Holmes turning himself into a werewolf is that it is kind of marginal and not that important <laughs> and happening in the background of all these other things happening. Yeah, that's like the yeah. least in, one of the least important things that happens in the story. I mean, it, it, he does it for a purpose and he fulfills that purpose, but it's not even the point of the ending or anything. Yeah. No, because what happens, you know, not to spoil anything, but the, <laughs> the ending is that we're building towards this idea of a gate opening at the end and there's openers and there's closers and we need to see the roles fulfilled. And those roles are fulfilled in kind of surprising ways. And the familiars, because we see it from their perspective, mostly from snuffs, play really important roles in this. And I I really like how it ends because of that. Now, take a moment. Mm -hmm. Stop gushing. Mm. Turn your head around. Mm -hmm. What did you not like about this book? Uh, mm, (laughs) The inappropriate word for Romani. Yeah, that's true. Yes. I noticed that too. Yeah, yeah. The, I mean, <laughs> I mean, it, it's <laughs> straight out of the Wolfman, but yeah. still. To, to no, to piggyback off that, there are some things that it, you know, it's a little hard to criticize because this is kind of an older work of fiction, um, and it also takes place in eighteen hundreds Victorian England. Yes, but nonetheless, it was written in what this the seventies. Oh, oh 80s? no, later than that. Nineties. Ninety three. Oh, say. yeah, ninety three. You're right. Um, 
I think I was thinking of some of Zelazny's older stuff. Being no, written. this is one of his last books. Apparently, it was yes. the last book he wrote by himself before his death, and gotcha. one of his favorites. Yeah, so 93, you know, not super old, but, you know, it, it kind of has some antiquated elements to it. And for instance, there's, like, some transmisogyny when we're talking about Sherlock Holmes disguises, though not actually a there, lot. I was looking for it, and they were actually really good about it. Because, like, yeah, Sherlock Holmes as Linda Enderby was just very taking, very straight face. And, like, nobody, there, mm-hmm. there wasn't any moral comment on, on it, whether it was good or bad. It was just... They just mentioned it was well done. <laughs> right. The only comment is it was an impressive disguise, which of course it was because it's Sherlock yes. Holmes and disguising yeah. is like one of his deals. And they mentioned at one point that when Sherlock Holmes' uh, disguise as Linda Enderby slips is when they're playing music. And they then they describe the movements as like masculine, but they just kind of show that like the facade, facade was dropping. Right. Yeah. And, and that's fair. And that's the only part that I was like, well, you know, what's your, your definition here? Yeah. But actually... <laughs> That uh, yeah, that's a, you know considering the time and the the age of the author and and all of that, it's not really that bad. Yeah, it's, I've it's had fine. a world, couple worldview shifts since last time I read it, so I was re- going back into this looking for something uh, untoward, but it tur- I was okay with it. Yeah. Now here's what I don't like, and it's just my weird, geeky, you know, <laughs> anal obsessions or whatever. Mm-hmm is like, it bothers me that some of the characters are specific characters and some of the characters are <laughs> archetypal characters. I just don't like it. I wish they were all specific characters. Does the fact that Rasputin is Rastov bug you in this? Yes, it does. Okay. I mean, they could have given him no name and mm-hmm. have it been like, oh, it's supposed to be Rasputin. It's the Mad Russian or That's something. That's fine. Yeah. yeah. But it's not Rasputin. And, you know, Larry <laughs> Talbot is Larry Talbot. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Sherlock, the great detective is Sherlock Holmes, come on. Of course. But, like, that is just not Rasputin. Mm -hmm. And, like, the vicar is not anyone specific, and it bugs my... I want everything (laughs) just so as a nerd. Like, I want everything to slot into the same category. And you said yourself a lot of times that you're a continuity nerd. I'm a continuity nerd, yes. want to know who it is, where they're from, and what they're doing. Exactly. And it would be fine if they were all a little bit off, you know, off... Uh, from being a specific character, though then we wouldn't have been doing it on this podcast because it would not be a fanfic if they were all inspired by other characters. And it would be fine if they were all specific characters, and I just don't like it that there's some of both. No, and I can kind of get on board with that in the sense of, like, how characters are portrayed. Like, we kind of only get basic glimpses into certain characters, and I think that's the point of the work. Hmm. But you get, you know, the Count clearly being Dracula, the Great Detective clearly being Sherlock Holmes, and you get the very, like, specific image, which I actually really like, of Frankenstein's monster, like, almost crushing Greymalk, who's a kitten, <laughs> just like the kitten gets crushed, and, mm-hmm. you know, and um, Mary Shelley's work. Luckily, it does not happen in this story. Yes, Greymalk is saved, which, you know, is a great parallel. So you get those awesome parallels, and then you sometimes get kind of shifting away and I feel like there's something that's almost like lost in the fact that the identities of the players are not fully realized like you get hints but they're not fully realized snuff is a really well developed character and all of the familiars are the humans are kind of deliberately not so 
And I guess it, it kind of leads to a little bit of confusion. Like, for me, the fact that Jack could be Jack the Ripper, it just makes no fucking sense. Like, I'm sorry. I understand. It, it, Jack the Ripper was, like, this horrible man. If and it, Jack it, is supposed to be, like, this nice guy that Snuff hang out, hangs out with. Like, I don't... That doesn't work for me. If, if it helps, they're not talking about historical Jack the Ripper. They're talking about Jack the Ripper, the character as seen in horror stories. But, like... That's what it's referencing. But he, I, then he just turned into, like, a good guy. Yeah. Yeah, but I don't know any stories in which Jack the Ripper is a good guy, except for this well, one. I, I've guess there's several like, different. I didn't recognize him in there's this. There's like many but... different stories, like in like animes and stuff that use a Jack the character inspired character. So I'm kind of used to seeing that in different fictions. I mean that that's fair. I just I I'm not and 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 I mean it's. I understand if that's something that Zelazny had like a precedence for. I, I don't. I'm not familiar with that precedent that was set before that, so maybe that's my problem. But it's just, like, it, it's also a weird precedent to say, like, somebody who was a pretty, like, horrible murderer of young women could be, like, a good guy. But they kind of do the same thing with um, Rasputin also. Well, Rasputin was a revolutionary. Like, he's... Rasputin was a bunch of things. I don't know. No, I mean, but here's what I think is, like, in terms of Rasputin... Um, he's not as prominent a character, first of all. He's not given the kindness that Jack is in the story. Mm -hmm. And furthermore, like, the whole thing about the Romanovs, like, you know, Rasputin as a mythical figure can be construed in multiple ways. Like, the Romanovs were not good. They should have been overthrown. Rasputin probably isn't a good person. Right. But, you know, like, there's arguments to be made around the importance of his role as a revolutionary. But it's just like the concept of Rasputin as a myth- mythical figure, I, I kind of, just the same thing as Jack the Ripper as a myth- mythical figure, not as an actual person. I suppose, person. yeah. I mean, and that's fair. And maybe it's just my lack of familiarity with Jack the Ripper as a mythological figure other than just the story of him. Yeah, I don't murderer. think you've been watching a lot of uh, Chunibyo anime lately. <laughs> I <laughs> Yeah, but like, did that precede this work? Like, that that's where I'm at. Well, it, it, it acclimated me to the concept. I see. I'm distracted by the sudden urge to seek out fan fiction of the animated movie Anastasia. So let me fight that down for a moment. <laughs> that was an awful animated movie. I, I know, I know it was. I loved it when it came out, Give and I had, <laughs> I had the Anastasia doll where you could like pull her hair out of her head and it would get longer, but... Okay. Anyway. <laughs> well, we should, we should move on. Thanks, Tori. I think you drew some intelligent criticism out of me complaining that authors do not cater specifically to my whims. <laughs> no, but you had a really good point. Um, no, no, I didn't. But, <laughs> but speaking of good things, what do you think the greatest strengths of the story are, to close this out? It's written by a dog. I mean... <laughs> <laughs> well, I didn't know that about Roger Zelazny, but I Clearly believe it. a dog. I love snuff as the character the dogness of the character is perfect and there are points where the cat talks and the snake talks and the bat talks and the rat talks and the owl talks and they all talk like you would want those animals to talk i I think that is spectacular it's really good for me i think it was the uh, drip fed world building that just happened in the background because this is kind of story where if you laid it all out uh, just bold facing, like explained it, it wouldn't be that good. But the fact that it's in the environment that it doesn't, there's a lot of um, showing, not telling, really, with this sort of stuff. The that it's discovered and it's incorpororated in organic ways, which just I, I, I'm a fan of that 
style of storytelling, which is why I got into early Steven Universe. <laughs> mm-hmm. There's a lot of things where they just little mentions of the world and you just left to go, whoa, what does that mean? <laughs> I agree. And I think, I guess the third pillar of that is that he does a really good job. He's throwing in all these things that amuse him. Mm-hmm. And he works them all in into a coherent narrative where they all fit together and where he doesn't throw in, he oh, I should say, he throws in very little that doesn't contribute to the story as a plot that's progressing and as a piece of entertainment. And also by keeping it vague, it doesn't need to justify too much. No, he doesn't. Like, we don't need to know Jill's whole backstory. We get yeah. we get what we need. Yeah. Um, for her role in this story. We don't even need to know that much about Jack. We get what we need. Yeah. And... It gives you some ideas what Jack could be. It also... And so it it could have been a lot more self-indulgent, I feel like, in terms of what he put in. And he showed some professional writer restraint in kind of like making sure that the things he's putting in serve the work rather than just kind of being bloated or meandering or whatever. It also helps to support the animal protagonists as the main actors in the right. story and things being mostly from stuff's perspective. Like the knowledge of human actions is just enough to give you what the plot is, but mm-hmm. not enough to make you see things quite from the human perspective. Yeah, and we've mentioned, but I just want to emphasize that different viewpoint really makes this story pop, I think. It's pretty yeah. Yeah. It does. Yeah. So next we should read Bonicula, right? No. Can we call that Dracula fan fiction? Mm-mm. Yeah. Mm-mm. I'm not actually sure we can. I don't know if there's... It's, that would just be like vampire. Like, I, I get the name is, but it, it's just really vampire. I, I think you could. I don't think you should. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, when this episode comes out, there should be a couple weeks left in this lonesome October of 2019. It's coming out on the 14th. Yeah. So take the opportunity to go out and read a published piece of crossover fan fiction that you may not have read before we suggest it as for next week things are a little bit up in the air i'm still figuring out exactly what we're doing because we're gonna be missing dom again yeah um as of release of this episode i will have just finished opening weekend of uh, south pacific where well, all, also after the what 16th or so we're allowed to murder you to prevent you from closing the gate just as long as you know where all my um Places of residence are, so you can fill out the pattern properly. Oh, tricky. Uh, so, sorry, what were you saying about South Pacific? <laughs> as you're listening to this, we will have just finished our opening weekend, which mm-hmm. would have come directly out of what's colloquially known as Hell Week, <laughs> which is um, dress rehearsal and um, every day before that with a like a 10-hour-long QDQ on Sunday. So that'll be fun. <laughs> Air quotes. Yeah, have fun. <laughs> so I'll, I'll be out for um, three consecutive episodes. Yeah, um, which dates will we be able to see you in South Pacific? Um, as of the time of this recording, you can still see me in six different shows on Friday and Saturday, the 18th, 19th, 25th, and 26th at 7.30 at Theater in the Grove in Forest Grove, and matinees on the 20th and 27th, which I believe starts at 2.30 p.m. Oh, two shows in a day is pretty intense for community theater. Uh, one show like... a day. Wait, Friday, I think you said... Friday, Saturday, and a matinee Sunday. Oh, Friday, Saturday, and matinee Sunday. Okay, yeah. yes. that makes more sense. It will truly be a lonesome October. Oh, yeah, that's true. <laughs> lonesome October of me sitting backstage most of the time reading fan fiction. <laughs> I think Tori meant lonesome for us. Oh, because yes. we'll miss you. All right, we I guess will. you guys exist too, sure. <laughs> <laughs> lonesome for the October, right. as we've said. So tune in next week 
will warn you what's happening before the episode comes out, but it may be a mystery. <laughs> As for this, this was episode 57 of Retro Fanfic Retrospective, A Night in the Lonesome October, the 1993 novel by Roger Zelosny. I cannot provide a link to it online, but you can find it at, like, libraries and stuff. It's a it's a real book. If you're writing Sherlock Holmes and Dracula fanfiction, you can, like, publish it, and it's a whole thing. Go out and do that. Okay, yeah, well, fine. Yeah, yeah. So you and I have your motto. <laughs> <laughs> Why haven't we made a profit writing Dracula Sherlock Holmes crossover fanfiction yet, like everyone else? Are they, are they, is it cross? Are they fighting each other? Are they working together? There have got to be so many stories where dracula and sherlock holmes fight each other i don't even know just by law of large numbers sort of thing yeah <laughs> yeah we may get to Anno dracula sometime which is a extremely dracula and other vampire crossover novel but sherlock holmes is incarcerated for the duration of that and does not get to fight dracula so it's very disappointing mm. the intro song is the weekly fair off of the album Popey's incredible adventure by komiku the outro song is run against the universe from the same album you can find this album and other works by Komiku at loyaltyfreakmusic.com. You can find our website at retrofanficretrospective.podbean.com or bit.ly slash retrofanfic. And if you have questions, comments, or thoughts about the episode, please find us on Twitter at Retrofanfic, Facebook at Retrofanfic, Reddit at Fanfic Retrospective, or send us an email at retrofanficretrospective at gmail.com. I put in the whole thing there. You can also leave comments or reviews anywhere you like. But ideally, something related to, like, podcasts, like the program that you use to listen to podcasts. I mean, you can write it on a bathroom wall or graffiti it, I guess, somewhere. Comments and reviews? Uh, we, we don't support um, committing minor crimes. I you mean, don't. I support that. But... Uh, officially, in a liable sense, we don't. <laughs> oh, right, of course. Yes. Uh, Depends but on whether did... it is missing up on that wall. <laughs> Hypothetically, graffiti it on a bathroom wall in portland we may or may not read and respond to your comments right that might be our most active uh, because of your interaction at this point (laughs) i'm amato i'm tori i'm dom we're just three earth life forms trying to be nice to each other despite our deferring views on whether or not we should release the great old ones until next time take care okay so three two one open or closer okay all right ready three two one closer Oh, I mean, oh. closer. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I see. <laughs> okay. We know who to watch out for. This isn't Night in of October. This is Harry Potter fan fiction. Yes, it is. I switched that over. <laughs> Speaking of reading fan fiction in one spare time that is not useful for the podcast. <laughs> yes. I read a significant amount of this story called, um, let me pull it up. <clears throat> Harry Potter and the Lack of Lamb Sauce. <laughs> the fuck? <laughs> so the premise is, instead of... Slughorn, being the new potions teacher in book six, 
It is a fictionalized Harry Potter version of Top Chef star Gordon Ramsay. The fuck? <laughs> I'm sorry, what? Um, Gordon Ramsay <laughs> as the potion teacher, sixth year Harry Potter. This potion is frozen! <laughs> Why? Why? Why, I don't know, but it's a very strange fanfic, and not for any of the reasons you would probably think. Because it starts off kind of being a story about Gordon Ramsay as a, as a like, Harry Potter wizard character, right? <laughs> Mm-hmm. And then it becomes a shonen sports manga with Ron engaging in like a student master chef competition at Hogwarts and meeting and becoming friends with all these other like you know aspiring chefs from the various houses. Okay, I I, I think this author would be friends with us. Well, <laughs> that in real life, <laughs> and that's all reasonable, right? <laughs> Very reasonable. Yes. Gordon mm-hmm. Ramsay drifts into the background, way into the background. That's fine. It's mm-hmm. a sports manga. It's cool. You know, Ron has, was around like his mom a lot in the kitchen. He like gets excited and he get, becomes a better chef. And then it becomes this extended story about the ways in which these people are surviving and resisting in the um, in the Voldemort-driven regime once they kind of take over the Ministry of Magic and mm-hmm. all that kind of thing. And, like, the various marginalized groups that are, you know, being victimized or in different ways and, like, the various oppressions of the government and ways in which people are trying to survive it and, like, the support that they have for each other across, like, these bonds that they made. And that's also cool. It's just that the story goes such different places. <laughs> but what does Gordon Ramsay have to do with all that? At that point, very little. <laughs> I mean, he's running a safe house. I guess so. Yeah, I mean... <laughs> I, I, I don't know why not. <laughs> As, as hard as I might, I can't figure out why not. And then I didn't finish it because it's just really, really long. It's, you know, <laughs> 356,000 words of this. Yeah. But, yeah. Yep. That sounds crazy and maybe something we should look into. Did you read uh, Gordon Ramsay's dialogue in a Ramsay's accent? No, because I'm not... I have never watched any Top Chef. You haven't watched a bunch of Kitchen Nightmares? No, I've only watched British Baking Show. But it was frozen. I ate this. Served <laughs> this to the customers. He is British, so there's that. <laughs> You're right. He is British. 